Missouri lawmakers are expected to be back in Jefferson City on Monday. Their main focus will be finishing up a state budget that's been radically changed by the coronavirus outbreak. But will lawmakers do anything else, and should they be going back to the Capitol at all? House Speaker Elijah Har joins us to answer those questions and more on the latest episode of Politically Speaking. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. Welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me from Jefferson City today is St. Louis Public Radio Statehouse reporter Jacqueline Driscoll. And joining us from beautiful and scenic Springfield, Missouri, we have as our very special guest today, the Speaker of the Missouri House. Elijah Har. Thank you, Mr. Speaker, for talking with us today. Uh, We're primarily having you on the show because the legislature is slated to come back into session on Monday. And it's it's a decision that I think is getting a lot of attention. Why is the legislature coming back into session? And do you have any concerns that coming back into session could get membership or staff sick? Constitutionally, we are required to pass the state budget by May 8th. And we've taken over a month off of of legislative time during this pandemic. Uh, We believe that it's time that really, if if we're going to get a budget done by May 8th, we almost have to come back by April 27th. In fact, I believe uh, the budget chair is working right now. He's probably going to be dropping budget substitutes on Friday. Uh, and then we will start the process of perfecting the budget the first part of next week. We've sat down with the Senate. We've laid out a schedule whereby we can get this budget constitutionally finished by May 8th. But it's going to be it's going to be fast um, to move. And, and obviously, there's a lot of things happening right now. In fact, just not yesterday afternoon, the U.S. Senate passed uh, what I would call stimulus four. That stimulus allows us to relax some of the regulatory framework for the federal money that's come down and maybe hopefully backfill a few of our budgetary spots. And so we have to come back. This is a constitutional duty we have to do. Now, am I concerned about people getting sick? Obviously I am. And we have taken uh, what I would consider abundant precautions. We've obviously been off for, for several weeks during the, the two days we were in for the supplemental budget session. We kept it to, to less than 10 people on the floor. We had everyone wearing masks and staying in their offices. And that was that was a couple of weeks ago. And, and as far as I can tell, no one yet has reported any symptoms as a result of coming to the Capitol. Now, obviously, there's no guarantee that that continues to happen. But we're going to, again, recommend people wear masks. We're going to recommend people stay in their offices. We're going to have the National Guard taking temperatures as people go in. So we're taking as many precautions as possible. But we have a constitutional duty we have to do. And so we're going to come back and do that. Speaker, this was something that I spoke uh, to the governor about at his press availability on Tuesday. Uh, He did mention that a lot of the federal stimulus money, we don't have 
you know, the guidelines for how that money can be spent. So is it responsible to come in and pass a budget by May 8th if you may later have to come back and change how some of those dollars are allocated? It's really not a question of responsibility as much as, as constitutional requirement. Our Constitution doesn't allow us to do anything but pass it by May 8th. And so we think it's, it's possible and, and maybe even probable that we'll have to come back after May 8th for special sessions to, to tweak and supplement how that budget money is allocated and spent. But we are, we are constrained by the state constitution to do it by May 8th. That's interesting because also, you know, the governor the governor has been speaking at his, at his press conferences about the budget often. He's getting a lot of questions specifically from state government reporters. And, and he didn't necessarily think it was possible to get it done by May 8th and thought it kind of indicated that it made more sense to make sure that it gets passed by June 30th. But now I'm hearing from you that it, it needs to be done by May 8th. Constitutionally, it has to be done by May 8th. I'm not sure there's been a time in the state's history it hasn't been done by May 8th. We've met with the Senate. Um, last week, we had a big meeting with the Senate Appropriations Chair, the House Budget Chair, and leadership from both sides that we sketched out uh, dates by which they would need the budget in order to get a turnaround back to us, a couple days for conference. And, and final votes on the last day uh, of the Constitution deadline. It's very feasible. Obviously, the longer we can have with the budget to, to get a sense on revenues and federal money is helpful, but we're required to do it. There's, there's just no getting around that. Do you know of any repercussions of what would happen if the legislature did, for some reason, miss that May deadline? So if we were to miss the May 8th deadline, I believe the appropriate response would then be for the governor to have to call us into a special session on that. Uh, the problem you have is if you read through uh, the, the, the constitution, constitution or requirements regarding the budget, uh, it, is, it is sort of unclear if, if, if you do not pass at least one of the budget bills by May 8th, if you can even do a special session, it may not be contemplated by the Constitution. Because of that, we feel like it is, it is, it is inherent and, and, and required for us to get these budget bills up and to the governor by May 8th. The governor announced this week also that um, he was going to be withholding some additional uh, funding. He already had announced that he was going to restrict $180 million. Can you lay out how some of that federal stimulus money is important in um, budgetary needs, you know, probably for, for next year, but even right now? I mean, we've got a lot of budget shortfalls. So what are you keeping in mind? So as part of the, the, the stimulus or the supplemental budget we passed a couple of weeks ago, there's about $6 billion, most of it being federal funds in there. Um, a lot of those came in certain silos or are coming in certain silos. I believe they're all supposed to be to the state by April 24th. We don't have it all yet, but it's, it's coming. They're supposed to be in certain silos. And so you might have uh, a few hundred million dollars for uh, K-12 or a few hundred million dollars for higher ed. Uh, and and it, it's in a silo. And what the federal government told us is that they were going to promulgate some rules for that. We don't have all the rules or guidelines yet. Now, the stimulus that passed the Senate yesterday discussed relaxing some of those rules, and that way it could uh, potentially be used to, to, to backfill shortfalls in the budget. Um, but at this point, we just don't have that, and, it, and it's, it's, it's almost a day-by-day -day process where we figure out what we can do with that federal money and where we can, where we can plug and place that. 
Uh, obviously, at the end of the day, I think it, it's possible that, that we end up having more money between our state budget and our federal money that we're spending than we would have had previously with just the state budget, but it's very specific on when, how, and where we can spend that money. And so we're still in the process of doing that. Like I said, the, the budget process in the House will start with, with uh, perfection on Monday, and hopefully by that time we have as much guidance as possible, but it will be a moving target even as the bills go to the Senate and then reconference. Before I let Jason jump in, I have one more quick question. How much money has our state received from the federal government at this point? I, that would be a better question for Treasurer Fitzpatrick. Within the, the supplemental fund, I know we had allocated approximately $6 billion. I think it was $5.8, federal, $5.8 billion from federal dollars. Last I heard from the state treasurer, $2 billion of that had been received. Um, he may have updated since then, but that's the last I had heard. I want to take the budgetary situation into a different direction. Right now, people aren't traveling as much, and that means they're filling up their cars with gas a lot less. And I'm wondering if you've gotten any indication about how that consequence of COVID-19 has affected the amount of money coming in for transportation projects and whether that may have to be something else legislators take up, whether it be like a gas tax increase or whether it be something to fill in what could be a very big gap in the ability for roads and bridges to be repaired? You know, I've been one person who for years has been talking about the fact that, that I think gas taxes are, are just sort of a, a, an antiquated way to collect money. Obviously, cars more and more are, are, are switching to alternative fuel energy. But at this point, that's, that's the way the state does it. I think with three weeks left in session and with obviously a bulk of that time devoted to the budget, there's probably not going to be time to consider something like that. Um, that may be a next year priority for, for the next leadership team. Obviously, I won't be there. Um, and at this point, when we've had conversations with the governor, we've not really had conversations about special sessions other than the possibility of special sessions to consider budgetary budgetary challenges. Uh, but obviously, the governor can call from a special session at any time on any issue. Uh, that he deems fit. And, and so that may be something he's contemplating. I just am not aware of it. If so. Uh, Speaker, I wanted to go back again to, to the governor, because th- this is who I'm covering. So I'm <laughs> speaking a lot about him. But he he mentioned his, his plan to reopen the state in phases. And he says that phase one, he, he said it pretty confidently, is going to begin on May 4th. Um, what do you think about that plan? Is that a good goal? Is that doable to start reopening businesses by May 4th? Well, obviously, the governor's going to have a lot more information regarding that than I would. He's He's got a team of, of doctors and, and, and people that have been advising him on that. And, and so he'd be in a better position to say whether it's doable. But in, in my perspective, it, it appears that it is. We're seeing other states that are starting the process of reopening uh and they're doing it in, in, in slow phases. You know, if they're going to reopen non-essential business, a lot of them are limiting the number of people that can be there or can be under one roof. And it's sort of a slower process. But I think at this point, you know, our, our state, especially in the rural areas, you're seeing a lot of people that own businesses that, that, that say, listen, we, we can't make it much longer. We don't have a big spread in our area. We're trying to be safe, but we need to be able to, to re-engage in commerce. And so I think it's important for us to allow them to do that. Obviously, if, if people want to stay home, they don't want to reopen their businesses, um, they're more than welcome to do that. The people that do go out, obviously, a lot of the same precautions can and should be taken, whether it's wearing masks or trying to stay six feet, keep social distancing, uh, space between people. 
But I think at this point, with uh, with the University of Washington, sort of the, the standard by which everybody has judged um, the, the curve, they say we're several days past our peak. The whole goal here was to flatten our, our the curve to make sure that hospitals were not overrun. It appears that is the case, especially in the rural areas. And so I think the governor's uh, instincts on this are, are probably correct. Um, and I'm I'm excited to, to see people start being able to, to reopen their businesses. And, and again, I, I think that we have to believe and hope that citizens of Missouri will take those proper precautions. Uh, but as, as we go forward, I, I think that's going to be the right step. The governor was asked at a press conference a couple of days ago about the protests that were were in Jefferson, were going to be in Jefferson City, and that were in Jefferson City earlier this week, and that have popped up in other places around the state. This is part of what he had to say about not only the protest movement, but also just about his decision to start reopening the state and the economy on May 4th. I think more importantly on the protest side of it, uh, and I know that's kind of a national theme right now where people are protesting, but right now in the state of Missouri, we're in the process of starting to reopen our state which I think is somewhat what the protest wants with some, maybe some other issues they have. But I think we're lining up directly with what the president's orders were earlier or last week, what they did. So we're, we're doing what we can to get this state open. And I think Missouri was one of the first states probably to announce that we were going to be opening back up. I am like almost 100 percent on the side of free speech and free expression almost every instance. And I think that people that are want to protest about this, they certainly have the right to protest. But Jacqueline was at this protest yesterday. They, they weren't, a lot of people weren't wearing masks. They definitely weren't set, uh, standing six feet apart. And beyond just responding to the governor's comments, do you think it was an appropriate thing for people to protest like this when there's still concern about spreading this virus and potentially like, you know, all the work that's been done up to this point get kind of washed away? First, I'm probably not going to go into a, a large group of people like that, but that's my own choice. And I think one of the important things that we remember is the First Amendment protects free speech we don't always like. And those people were there under their own free will and volition. They got the opportunity to decide if they wanted to wear masks, if they wanted to stand close to each other, and they chose to do so. And, and I think that's something our Constitution expressly protects. And so I think whether or not you agree with the message and whether or not you agree with the uh, the way they were doing that, I think they're absolutely protected and have that right to do it. Again, no one forced to join them. No one forced whether or not to wear a mask. I think I think the the, the, the Constitution specifically says that type of protest is, is allowed and, and sort of what makes our country unique in that way. I was, I was there and it was very interesting. Um, you know, there was no concept of social distancing. There was, the gathering was definitely larger than 10 people, which was basically, you know, my question. And how was this allowed? I know that there was some security there. They pretty much stayed on the outskirts. And I, I understand that the constitution allows them to their right to protest. But during a state of emergency, while the governor has, you know, social distancing, guidelines in place, it, it was interesting to me that it was allowed to continue, I guess. Yeah, and I, I, I think sometimes, uh, I think obviously that's going to be a subjective judgment call, but I think uh, civil disobedience, especially peaceful civil disobedience, is, is sort of a hallmark of the United States. And uh, whether or not I would choose to participate in that particular one, I think protecting their right to do that is, is pretty important. And we'll be right back after this quick break with Missouri House Speaker Elijah Har.
And we're back on Politically Speaking with Missouri House Speaker Elijah Har. I want to turn to some of the non-budgetary issues that could or could not come up in the next three weeks. And I want to start with elections. If there's one public policy issue that I think a lot of people on both sides of the aisle are paying attention to, it's whether to change the manner of voting when COVID-19 concerns are still kind of out in the open. And one of the things that's been put forward by both Democratic and Republican county clerks is having the legislature pass a bill that would effectively allow someone to get an absentee ballot if there's an emergency or a pandemic going on. One of the people who supports this pretty strongly is Green County Clerk Shane Scholler. It really is not defined towards a pandemic. I think it's more towards a specific person who is ill at the time. Um, But there's a lot of voters that question that. We don't want voters questioning um, an excuse because they're worried that their excuse may not be valid during this time. And that's why when you have an excuse that says clearly during a countywide or statewide declared emergency, that is a valid excuse to vote absentee, then that voter doesn't have to, you know, be concerned. Am I, you know, correctly applying for an absentee ballot given the concern I have or am I not? Um, We don't want voters put in that position. So, Mr. Speaker, what do you think the chances are that the legislature would do what some county election officials want and specifically lay out that a voter could get an absentee ballot during a situation like the COVID-19 pandemic? So we're working on that. I actually had a phone conversation with Shane a couple nights ago. I know that the county clerk's organizations have put together some, some, some I think it's maybe eight different proposals um, in, in either one or a series of bills. Uh, they're working with Peggy McGaw, who used to be a county clerk up in Northwest Missouri and who's an elected member of the House uh, and I think is going to be running point on this. I know they're working closely with Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft. But I think, obviously, that's going to be one of the things that we're going to try to work on in the last three weeks that's non-budgetary related is what we do in situations like this. Because this may not be the last time that, that counties or the state have to declare an emergency. And I think it's important that we give both the, the clerks but also the voters some guidance on, on how they're able to exercise their right to vote during such a situation. Do you feel like this issue is as partisan as maybe people think so? Because I know that the president has talked to really dismissively about the concept of quote unquote mail in voting. Is there any way to basically make this like not as much of a partisan issue as it appears to have become? Yeah, I think honestly, this is within the Capitol and on the House floor. I think this is probably a little bit less partisan of an issue than it appears to be in, in the media. We obviously have to have a situation whereby people can vote in a pandemic. What we don't want people to do is have to um, go out during a state of emergency when, when, when they're being expressly told not to. And so I think this is the type of thing that I think is just basic good government. Obviously, you know, Republicans, Democrats may disagree on how far to take it. But I think specifically what the clerks are recommending is something that, that we believe is, is, is movable within our current legislative uh, makeup. And the governor was asked about this a couple days ago, and I want to play you what he said about this idea right now. Well, first of all, the county clerks and the secretary of state's office, I will sure uh, lead to their guidance where that might go. But let me be clear on this, and I've been clear ever since I've been governor. I'm not going to commit to signing any bill until I see what that bill looks like when it gets to my desk and see what all is in it. 
Uh, I've made that statement initially with the governor. Uh, know well enough, a lot of times when a bill comes forward, it's got a lot of other things in there you're not expecting. So point being, uh, if that bill comes through and it's a clean bill and the legislature and the secretary of state and the county clerks all sign off on it, uh, you know, we'll make that decision at that time. You know, that's, it's hard for me to glean exactly what the governor's actually thinking. We, we talked about a variety of things during this pandemic. We've not talked about voting, but my sense in, in, in listening to what he said is if the clerks are for it, if the secretary of state's for it, if the legislature passes it, assuming nothing is else on it, I, my guess is he's going to sign that. But again, uh, I don't think he wants to box himself into any sort of commitments, and I, I'd probably do the same thing if I was him. It's probably an obvious question, but voters are are clearly concerned about going to the polls. I, I've had a lot of people reach out and um, you know want the legislature to talk about this. Is the legislature concerned about the safety at polls moving forward? You know, I think that again is sort of a moving target. I think. When we, by the time we get to a June or an August election, this this may all be entirely different. We we the the the, the rate of infection may be way down. We may not have anybody being concerned about going out. Um, and so I think it's hard to make a prediction about something several months from now when this epidemic has moved so quickly and changed so much in such a short amount of time. I think that the recommendation from the clerks about about providing an absentee. Uh, excuse during the state of emergency is absolutely well-reasoned. Uh, but again, who knows what it'll look like by June or by August. But yeah, for sure, it's something that we're going to prioritize. I think everything that we are working on that's not budget-related will have some impact or some tie to the COVID-19 epidemic. And I think this is one that's directly in the wheelhouse for that. So that kind of leads into our last line of discussion and talking about some of the things that do not have a COVID-19 tie to them that were passed before the legislature effectively shut down with the exception of passing the supplemental. I think a lot of people are wondering if the House is going to take up Senator Dan Hageman's resolution that would put something on the ballot that replaces the state legislative redistricting system that was passed in 2018 in a, in a, in a ballot issue known as Clean Missouri and replace it with a modified version of the old system. What's the expectations on that issue? You know, it's hard to say. I'll be honest. The last few weeks, we've spent so much time, one, trying to figure out how, how and when we can come back to session, two, figuring out what the procedure will look like, three, figuring out what budget revenues look like. Uh, our focus has been primarily over there. We've had very little discussion in regards to policy items. Uh, we met last week with the Senate. The House leadership did to talk about the budget. And the idea was we we're going to talk about budget and policy priorities. We ended up spending about six hours, and we only got through when we were going to do the budget. Um, and so we've, we've just not had a real chance to focus on the other policy items. We're doing calls this week to try to figure that out. But, you know, I think a good example of something that, that it's always hard because I think anybody can make a, make a case that something might be connected to COVID-19. But let's take, for instance, prescription drug monitoring. Um, Holly Rader's been working on that for eight years. Every single year we've been working on that. We got that through the Senate finally this year. It's now back on the House. It requires one more vote to truly agree and send to the governor. Is, is, it, is a PDMP related or directly related to COVID-19? I think it's hard to argue that it is. I think maybe you can make an argument that it is, but I, I think it's probably hard to argue it is. But, but I also think that's something that, that that's eight years of work, and that's something that will dramatically impact the state. I don't think there's any way we don't take that legislation up. And so I think 
you know, it's hard to say exactly which bills are, are so important, we will or won't take them up before you sit down and you go through it. And so at this point, without having had those conversations with, with my leadership team, with the Senate leadership team, I think it's, it's too soon to say exactly what things we're gonna work on. I will say that obviously the budget and, and our committee hearings, we've been starting the process of meeting with our committee chairs and saying, do you really think when we come back, it's important enough for you to have a hearing on something? And if so, why is it important and what are the issues and how does it relate to the epidemic? And in, in what way do we do that in the safest way possible? But as far as specific policy items, I don't think we've gotten to the point where we have a list of, of, of bills or, or agenda items that we're going to try to get done in the last three weeks in session. Um, it's just it's still our time's been primarily taken up with procedure and with budget at this point. Going back to the clean Missouri uh, issue a little bit is one of the things that your caucus is weighing that if you end up passing something like that, that optically it would look kind of mismatched that you're passing that in the middle of the COVID-19 crisis, and you don't want to take the rhetorical hit by doing that. So I think, I think obviously, I, I'm sure that's something that's been in people's minds, but um, it's not something we've necessarily had the chance to, or I've not had the chance to really discuss with people because we've been so focused on the budget. Um, my big thing is when we spend the last three weeks of session, I want to, to stand there on the last day of session and tell people we did everything we could to try to get good government issues done, and particularly the government issues that affected um, or, or have an impact or were impacted by COVID-19. But I've just not had the chance to sit down with people and think about it. And honestly, I don't think a lot about maybe maybe what the what the appearance of things are. I'd sort of look at the, the you know, a year from now plan will people look back and think that was that was an important issue to get done or it wasn't an important issue because, you know, in the moment, sometimes the things that we work on may seem seem untimely, but I think looking long-term, you, you gotta make those judgments about what it'll look like in a year, five years, or 10 years. I have one more final question for you. Um, when the legislature comes back, um, we saw when you guys came back previously to pass the supplemental budget, an empty chamber and you know members getting called in in groups of four, um, several had masks on. It, What's it going to look like when the legislature comes back to work on the budget? Sure. So so I think we will probably make recommendations. I, I probably will wear a mask. I think we'll, we'll hand everybody masks. We'll have everybody's temperature tested when they come in. Uh, my recommendation, people will be staying in their offices as much as possible. However, I don't think we're going to have stringent rules about how many people can be on the floor at one time. The budget's obviously a really big part of what we do. It's the only constitutional duty we have. And so I think we're going to need to, um, there's going to be more people that want to be either on the floor, involved in debate, or offering amendments than, than in, in maybe a supplemental a few weeks ago. The second part of that is, as we've seen, not only are other states starting to reopen, but even Cole County and, and Jefferson City are starting to relax some of their uh, rules. And I think we probably won't have as stringent of we're not going to suspend the rules and, and, and limit votes to four people at a time, because when we did that, we had to leave the board open for about 45 minutes for each vote. And so I think we're probably going to have some recommendations and requests that people uh, abide by, but it will not be the hard and fast rules we saw a few weeks ago. My final question is, and this is going to probably require like a constitutional amendment change that would have to be voted on by Missourians. But has this entire experience perhaps made you or any other members of the leadership team think about there needs to be some system in place to allow for 
the the legislature to meet remotely it's certainly been discussed it's something that obviously we we've we've contemplated with the advent of technology why do we all need to be in the same building in jefferson city when we're having a pandemic like this some of the concerns i've heard raised are if you did whether it be a, a zoom meeting or whatever it was particularly voting remotely there's some concern about how do we verify that people are not under, under, under any sort of duress. You don't know, uh, you know, we have rules about the House floor. A lobbyist, for instance, cannot walk onto the House floor. Um, there's nobody sitting there. If we were to change it to remote voting, a lot of those would have to be contemplated. What if, what if you had somebody sitting in your house who was a lobbyist? Or what if you had somebody sitting in your house holding, holding a gun to you? Like we, we can't verify that. And so I think those sort of, of, of concerns at least have to be considered. Now, I think technolo technologically wise, it's certainly something that we should consider, particularly for, for, for another situation of emergency. You know, trying to come back and do the supplemental, supplemental budget was incredibly, incredibly difficult. And I think for emergent situations, particularly declarations of emergency, I think that there's gonna be a lot of people that'd be interested in that. I don't think there's gonna be interest in that to just generically go to a remote voting or remote debate system. Well, Mr. Speaker, thank you so much for your time this morning. We really appreciate this under these extraordinary circumstances. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. How could people follow you on Twitter, Jacqueline? Driscoll and PR. And how could people follow you on Twitter, Mr. Speaker? So mine is just at Elijah Har, and it's hard to spell. It's E-L-I-J-A-H-H-A-A-H-R. And I, I see that we have a cameo from one of your kids right now. Is that is that is that? Correct? I do. Hey, hold on, sister. You want to you get up here? Yes. Uh, <laughs> one of one one of one of my five year old twins wanted to come down and tell me that she needs to use the bathroom, so I'm gonna have to take her up to stairs to the restroom pretty shortly. Well, I have I have twin four year olds. Great. Boys. Well, we should get. I was gonna say once once we're through this epidemic, we'll get them together sometime. <laughs> okay, sounds good. Thank you guys, and until next time, so long. Before we sign off this week, I want to bring in my colleague, St. Louis Public Radio's political reporter, Julie O'Donohue. She has an announcement she'd like to make. Tomorrow, Friday, will be my last day at St. Louis Public Radio. I am moving back to Louisiana, where I previously worked, to help set up a nonprofit newsroom through State's Newsroom in Baton Rouge that will focus on state government and policy and the legislature there. Well, Julie, I want to take this opportunity to thank you for everything that you've contributed, not only to the show, but to St. Louis Public Radio's political coverage. Um, I'm really sorry to see you go, but part of me is also happy that you're going back to Louisiana um, because I know that it holds a really special place in your heart and your career. And I know that you're going to succeed wildly in your new endeavor. And I'm not really good at like showing appreciation and emotion and thankfulness sometimes, but I'm really thankful that I had a chance to work with you for the time that we had. And I'll definitely be watching to see what you're doing next. Yeah, thank you, Jason. You've been a, a real joy to work with. And I think you should be proud of everything you've built, particularly this podcast. Well, my already large ego is now a little bit larger after hearing that. How can people follow you on Twitter or any other parts of the World Wide Web, Julie? At J.S. O'Donohue. 
We'll be back next time. Until then, so long. Bye. Shadows are falling and I'm running out of breath. Keep me in your heart for a while. If I leave you, it doesn't mean I love you any less. Keep me in your heart for a while. When you get up in the morning and you see that crazy sun, keep me in your heart for a while. There's a train leaving nightly called when all is said and done.